And thanks to Cryer Malt, local malt for local beer. This is Radio Brews News. I'm Pete Mitchum, and with me today is James Atkinson. And today we've also got a special guest, James. Yes, we sure do. Who might that be? Well, it might be. No, 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 I won't say that. No, look, it might be uh, Matt Kierkegaard, travel exponent extraordinaire, overseas correspondent, and um, an up-to-the-minute news reporter uh, from our, uh, our overseas desk. Matt, welcome back to Radio Brews News. Thanks very much, guys. And uh, my ears were burning while I was gone. I, I got a bit of a pasting last week. <laughs> oh, did that get through? <laughs> Freya was under strict instructions. Yeah, Prof. The great thing about the internet is that it's accessible from overseas. Ah, there you go. So who would have thought the World Wide Web is worldwide now? <laughs> there you go. So, no, thank you very much, guys. And uh, thank you for uh, running the show so uh, ably while I was gone. Or if the feedback is to believe, uh, better. <laughs> that was a pleasure. Now. Different. And that's the feedback from you two. There doesn't seem to have been any feedback from listeners apart from James being the voice of the new generation. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to providing some more young perspective this week as well, guys. And I'm looking forward to getting a new range of T-shirts in the Bruce News merch shop that uh, with a picture of Waldorf and Statler saying, Waldorf and Statler live. <laughs> Our opinions are valid, you know, you young whippersnapper. <laughs> Back when you were still shitting your nappies, Matt and I were drinking beer. <laughs> well, but but that's the thing, Prof. That there is like it's not saying that you're old or that you're sort of uh, or anything like that, or, or myself for that matter. But you know, I I think that there really is a difference in perspective between um, you know perhaps you and I who uh, and it was something that I reflected on while I was away that I, I was I went back to some of the earliest articles I was writing 15 years ago about beer. And the beers I was writing about, you know, Little Creatures and Rogers beer were beers I talked about. And it was the first couple of years I didn't even mention craft beer. And I think that anyone who has discovered craft beer in the last four or five years have only ever known it as craft beer. And so it's not that we're old, but we, we just do have a different perspective because our history with beer straddles that divide. No, I was just saying you were old. No, fair, fair call. <laughs> so how old are you, James? 38. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So you haven't even got ten years on Matt. No, I haven't, and I haven't, and, and I, yeah, I, I guess um, I'd like to distance myself from from some of the the young Gen Ys as well. So uh, I'd, I'd say I probably have a bit more in common with you guys in terms of my outlook on beer that, that, than some people that I see on Facebook groups these days. Yeah, and look, we I do need a. I think we need a Triple J style, uh, you know, youth correspondent because yeah, when James is thirty eight, uh, and even I mean Luke, um, who uh, Luke, Luke from Mail of a Time, Luke Robertson, you know, it seems to be the voice of a, a younger generation, but he's in his early thirties, I believe. Yeah, definitely. We don't need a, you know, a youth correspondent, do we? The voice of youth. We're just the voice of beer. If you want, I mean, we, we can get somebody who, you know, does a, a spot each week, you know, for young adults, by young adults. And <laughs> oh, well, no, but it's, it, it's more... And we could call it nosing around. <laughs> the, the podcast that we did um, with Luke last year, where, you know, ultimately we agreed about a lot of things, but it was coming at it from very different points of view. And, and that point of view is very much reflected by your age and there are no absolutes in in beer and you know, your point of view about what is craft beer and what is an exciting style and and those sorts of things you know prof you and i tend to yawn a little bit about any ipas for example because it's just another thing that's come up whereas to somebody who's discovered craft beer in the last three years it's new and exciting and you can look at it fundamentally the same way and, and enjoy it but it depends on what your broader perspective is because beer is very much a reflection of culture and, and that includes the different cultures that you have based on age exactly yeah 
Matt, tell us about your, uh, you've just literally, um, and we probably need to keep this short and sharp and snappy, lest jet lag take over and you nod off into your podcast microphone. Um, you've literally just landed back from the UK. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I got in at midnight last night um, after, God, it, it really is a long flight from the UK. Um, but yeah, no, it was, it was a really good trip. It was a bit of a whirlwind trip. I was on the ground for just a bit over a week. Caught up with some amazing people, did a really you know, eclectic range of things. And, and this week on Beer as a Conversation, I caught up with Alex Troncoso, uh, formerly head brewer from Little Creatures, then uh, with Camden Brewery, and now has his own brewery called Lost and Grounded, which is down in Bristol. So I caught up with Alex. I headed out to uh, a lovely little town called Stroud, which is uh, in Gloucestershire, um, and caught up with a food writer by the name of Matthew Fort, who used to be the Guardian's food editor and a, a very respected, and he's on the Great British Menu, which I think, I, I don't, I've not actually caught it before. Yeah, um, he's one of my food heroes, Matthew Fort. Is he? Oh, yeah. There you go, Prof. Yeah. Well, he's um he's over in September. He's great mates with uh, Rory Gibson, who's uh, a, a friend of mine and a beer writer up this way. And uh, yeah, so I wanted to catch up with Matt, and uh, we had a we had a terrific, a really really lovely afternoon in the Woolpack, which is a pub. Uh, in Stroud, um, just drinking real ales. And uh, yeah, no, so it was a fascinating, fascinating trip. And I, I have to say, one of the things that I found was that you look really forward to going over and trying beers at the source and visiting a range of breweries. But then when I got there, there's this you know, very exciting craft beer movement in the UK. But when you try the beers, you're sort of thinking, okay, well, this is just like you know, X beer from this 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 brewery in in Australia, and it was a little bit of a disappointment that you go so far for exactly the same thing. The styles that were popular here were you know popular there. The hop varieties that were used. Um, so th- th- there was an element of you going a long way to try the same thing, admittedly fresher than the, the imports, but it was still very much the same as what we're getting over here. Apart from, I would have thought the you know the real ale, which is something that we we really don't have here, and which I definitely miss from my time in the UK, is that you know when you actually went back there and got to enjoy some real ales again, were they as good as you remembered them being the last time you were over there? Yeah, look, they really were the, the highlight of the trip. That said, you go to a lot of pubs in London that talk about having cask ales and things like that, and they're they're, they're pretty generic um and to the point of being disappointing i headed down to cambridge and uh had a couple of beers there and it just got to the stage that i wasn't game to order a pint because some of the big names um and if i had an adnum summer ale and it was just bland to the point of i would almost have rather had a well-made lager but a lot of the the hand pump beers and and that was the one point of distinction um was you did get to have you you knew that you were traveling when you were having some of those hand pumped beers. But even there, to to harken back to a discussion we had a couple of weeks ago about beer temperature, um, you know, the the whole thing of British warm, flat beer. I landed in in London expecting it to be very much like a Brisbane winter and I'd packed for, you know, 8 to 22 degrees and (laughs) landed at the height of the longest British heat wave in 22 years and it was 34 degrees and you know I was on a train back from uh, Bristol and the air conditioning wasn't working and they were handing out emergency water rations because uh, to stop people from fainting and getting sick and you know, you're going to an English pub on a 32 degree day and you know even the publican was saying when you ordered a you know a real ale look are you sure you don't want something that's a little bit cooler today <laughs> um, and, and it really 
did give some context to around where those beers developed. And then you drink um, Pacific Ale or so. Yeah, yeah. I, I, you travel a very long way to drink local, Matt. Well, it, it was one of those things. I did catch up with um, their man on the ground over there. They, they are ship sending, I think, a, about a container a month over there. I caught up with Pat, who is their, their, their local rep there, who I was a Sydney guy, James. I'm not sure if, uh, if you knew him. He was one of the Sydney reps down there. I've, I've met Pat before, yeah. Yeah, a no, wonderful guy. And he took me, again, you know, like I, when I travel, I don't tend to have a, a set itinerary um, apart from the people that I need to meet. And so Pat, um, I said, mate, take me around and show me some of the, the great pubs um, in London or the places that are doing some interesting stuff. And so we went and visited some great little pubs. And one of those just happened to have Pacific Ale. And he was quite keen for me to have one just so I could see how it had traveled. And it was, it, it, it tasted beautiful. It uh, had traveled very, very well. And so that was the one beer that I had prof that I probably uh, you know and it was purely a research broke, broke the rule yeah. Yeah. But, but, oh, oh, of course no, but no. I have to say that the, the Pacific Ale was a beer that translated very well again it was a warm day it translated very well over there and um i actually said to jamie cook who was over there we just missed catching up that uh, you know this would be perfect on the hand pump and he just said what you mean hot flat and warm and I, I didn't have it as a hand pump i did have it uh, as draft and it was a little bit warmer than we would probably serve it here and it was just perfect it was a really really nice distinctive um beer but still modeled on that english summer ale yeah, well, that's what I was about to say, is that it is an English-style summer ale, so it's probably not surprising that it, it fits in with what they're making over there. But if Stonewood's sending over a, um, a container every month, obviously, you know, people are continuing to buy it. What do you think they're selling that beer off the back of? Like, what, what is it about Pacific Ale that is appealing to people in London in what is probably also becoming a crowded market with their own craft beer brands? That's a, a great question because it is incredibly uh, crowded and I'd, I'd love to have a chat to Jamie Cook about it to find out what their thinking is. But I think that it is one of the, at 4.4%, it fits right into that real ale category, but it's not served as a real ale. So it's a little bit more contemporary and it's, you know, it, it, it's cooler and those sorts of things. But it's still just a, a very easy, delightful drinking beer um, that fits very nicely with a, an English summer. I didn't get a sense that they were selling it that you know there was no boxing kangaroos there was no aussie swazis <laughs> there was none of that that you see in the um you know walkabout style pubs um over there so it was just listed i saw cloud catcher was on um at camden which they used to have an association and then the, the and i'd prof I, I didn't have the cloud catcher was at camden i drank the local there but yeah so I, i'd be really interested to see what their thinking is but it did strike me that when I was having a lot of the real ales, that it sat beautifully within that category of beers. Cool. Actually, it's a question that having come back, what, what do you guys think of that? You know, the homogeneity of craft beer, that when you can sort of have a beer here and then travel halfway around the world and have exactly the same beer made by another brewery. Do, do you guys think that that can have any impact on when all beers are the same or there's a whole lot of people making the same beer is that going to contribute to a consolidation of breweries because it's very hard for 50 breweries to make the same beer and compete prof uh yeah prof uh, go on james hey. uh, i don't know if i've got anything on that one <laughs> uh look i just think it, it yeah look it's um i think it probably gives even more credibility to the the brew pub model uh, i guess it just depends you know look at the end of the day you want to make money out of beer you got to make more beer because it's a a low margin product so 
the only way you can increase your profit is to increase your sales. The only way to increase your sales is to uh, increase your volume. The only way to increase your volume is, you know, efficiencies of scale and perhaps, you know, making savings where you can in, in areas like logistics. Uh, but does, do, do we then risk getting the, you know, homogeneity of craft in the same way as we've had the homogeneity of, you know, bland mainstream lager? Uh, I think there's still plenty of room for interest and flavour and all that sort of thing. It really just comes down to both the personal preference of the drinker and the personal preference of the business making that beer, whether they want to sell as much as they can wherever they want or or to appease their markets. I think some probably go out to create demand, whereas others go out to meet demand. And that's probably two quite different things with um, the possibility of two different results. Time will tell. Yeah, mate. Yeah, no. I, like, I agree with your profit. It'll be interesting to see what happens. But that was particularly. I was following the news when I was away that Sydney is apparently the craft beer, or inner Sydney is apparently the craft beer capital these days. And you look at the con- just Marrickville, I think. Oh, Marrickville. Okay. But you- yeah. No, uh, while you're while you're away, uh, roughly ninety percent of uh, Australia's independent breweries are now situated in Marrickville or intend to move there. <laughs> <laughs> But that I mean, that was a great case in point. You know, if if you've got eight or nine breweries in a very very small area, um, you know, if they all want to be production breweries, you, you're going to find it very hard to differentiate yourself. Um, and you know, we, we, we do see. You know, Stonewood pioneered a style over here that we're now seeing a lot of breweries because it's popular. A lot of breweries are starting to do the same thing. You know, how many can you have who are packaging? that same style of beer um and, and that's where i think your brew pub um comment is, is spot on prof um well and, and not even the brew pub model itself but if you look at i guess like a cooperative brewery model and using bad shepherd wolf of the willows as an example now we've often spoken about that that that's that's two breweries that wouldn't exist had they not been able to sort of join forces and um and, and share equipment and you know speaking to both the guys there um scotty and derek that particular model for them you know has a a a use-by date and they'll eventually you know look at look at doing something else but i I just wonder whether in the same way that pete phillip has kind of i guess harnessed the vibe and the um you know the creativity and the energy that's that's around that inner city area at the moment will serve as a bit of a blueprint for others who might say well maybe we need to start you know ordering our malt together to perhaps get some discounts and maybe we can save some money there so maybe we either make a bit of coin or or you know we can get our beer at a lower price point be interesting to see mm. and, and that, that in itself is an interesting thing because you're looking at saving costs and you know that sounds very much like accountants um, running the brewery as as well but again it's as with anything trying to save costs is it's a matter of which costs you save yeah and look don't knock the bean counters because we've seen examples of uh very good breweries that have come unstuck because they weren't very good businesses um and i think we've got to sort of start appreciating that that it's fine if you've got a you know a little two tap hole in the wall sort of brewery bar somewhere you can afford to kind of i guess make it up as you go along or you know get friends to help out who are good with numbers but anything above that i think really you need to have a really good business plan and you need to have somebody who can look after that business side of things for you if that's not your forte. Mm. I did flick, just just to finish off on that point, I flicked the, the question to Stephen Beaumont. Um, I was communicating with him while I was there and I just asked him what he thought about the homogeneity of, uh, of beers and he said that he's in the process of developing a touring seminar called I'm So Bored with the USA. Um, he thinks that too many breweries are bored into the US craft culture and are forgetting to forge their own way. Thankfully, however, exceptions are also rising up like Italy and the Czech Republic. 
Um, and you know, Italy is a very distinct craft beer culture. And I think England and Australia's craft beer movements are very, very similar to each other in a lot of ways. And I think that they are forgetting that there is a certain level of, um, you know, what, what I think of as cultural terroir, that beers need to reflect the conditions that they spring up in that may not be the reflect the ground but reflect the culture um and that's you know going back to real ale that seems to have been what real ale was all about so yeah anyway that was my trip and i've got a couple of great interviews and uh, i'll probably pen some articles as i uh, mull over some of those issues yeah cool and look we might whip through the uh, the rest of the news that's relevant to our loyal listeners and then um they can head straight across to beer as a conversation which is part of Radio Brews News, which um, will feature this week your interview with Alex Troncoso. Mm, and I, I will say that uh, with that interview with Alex, it, it was fascinating because his beers were some of the most, and it, it's very hard as an Australian reviewing an Australian's beers overseas to not have a little bit of a bias, but I thought his beers were some of the most distinctive uh, that I tried over there because he's taking some classic um, you know, German and uh, Belgian styles and you know just doing a little bit of a you know blurring around the edges in in terms of putting his own stamp on them and uh they they were very very distinctive and he's uh, really getting a, a great reputation over there so um and that certainly mirrors do jump over and listen. That, that certainly mirrors map i think what he was doing when he first came to camden town brewery he bought that i guess that that uh, german styling and i think in a lot of ways the the work that he and jasper did together um as a as a brewery really sort of broke down some of those barriers of, um, you know, the whole lager lout kind of picture that we get uh, of, you know, that lager's a bit dumb and it's a bit, you know, it's simple and, and all that sort of thing. I think they really, uh, and certainly when I visited and, and drank the beers there, um, I just drank lagers because you had about eight different ones that you could that you could try and all of them just sort of said, yep, yeah, this, is, this is what lager can be. Yeah, and Camden was another brewery that I visited, and uh, next week we'll play my interview with Jasper, um, which was fascinating. So I, I was lucky enough to tour the, the brand spanking new brewery that wasn't yet opened and got to try the very first batch of the very first pilot while I was there. And it is a huge brewery, very, very slick, very, very automated. Jasper said that the plans were all in place before the ABI merger, but they've, you know, they've had a whole lot of extra things that they've had to bring to it and in terms of you know, like x-ray machines to x-ray the bottles and... All, all that um, yeah, stuff, stuff that they couldn't have done, done. And, and probably wouldn't have, but a big... Mer- merger or a, or a sellout? Um, it was a buyout. buyout. Um, what, what did I say? Merger. Oh, well, yeah, when, you, when you're as small as he is, it's probably a little bit um, not a merger, but it was a buyout. Um, but Jasper's still very much hands-on. In fact, uh, when we were driving back from the brewery, he had to stop at his local corner store to drop off a couple of cartons. Um, so he, he's still very, very hands-on. Um, but, yeah, no, really interesting. I was going to say, it's good, good to see they've kept him on, if only as a delivery boy. <laughs> <laughs> no, but he is very, very hands-on. And, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll save that for, for, for next week. But it, was, it, it did raise a lot of questions about, you know, what buy-up means and, you know, uh, Camden Town is absolutely everywhere. Um, the the Hellas uh, or the Hells uh, Lager is just everywhere um, in London. But apparently, it was before the buyout as well. So that says a lot for the success of of the brewery um, and and what he did, even as an independent. What car was he driving, Matt? <laughs> Uh, he was driving an Audi, which actually, given that I was staying in South Kensington, where there were like Audi 
R8s or um, Lamborghinis and Ferraris and uh, it, it was astounding. I, I started taking photos of all of the Porsches in the street until by day two I was absolutely bored with it because I'd photographed about a hundred of them. So yeah, so it, it was a very modest car and I, I don't think that he was necessarily uh, getting it. I, I don't think he was pulling out the second car just to show me that he hadn't changed. <laughs> yeah, well, I was just having a dig anyway. Sorry, Jasper. <laughs> no, but, uh, and, and Jasper will be out in September, so we might even get to uh, catch up with him. But no, it was a really, really good chat and very, very interesting to see. And it'll be interesting to see, um, you know, I, I think what ABI are doing with breweries like Camden and uh, Goose Island are going to be very interesting to watch over the next uh, 18 to 24 months. Definitely. So well, that was a postcard from my trip. Prof, what else did you want to talk about? Or oh, James, you wanted to talk about the Brewers Association. Yeah, well, you guys would have seen that um, this morning uh, we woke up to the news that the Brewers Association in the US has launched a new labelling initiative, um, which is a label that all of its members can put on their beers uh, to show that they are independent craft beers. Um, so it's kind of interesting that that, um, you know, where they've always talked about craft as being, you know, their definition of craft is what decides their membership, that they've sort of, they sort of seem to have elevated the word independent in their messaging to consumers. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was really interesting that their uh, their logo is an upside down beer bottle. That was the first thing I noticed. Is that like tipping one out for my homies or is it... Uh, you know, we're heading in a different direction? Or? Apparently it signifies the fact that their members have upended the beer category. So that's what that's supposed to mean. Okay, so that's a disruptor beer bottle. Exactly, disruptor. That's 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 the word. That's the cool <laughs> speak, isn't it, at the moment? Isn't yeah. that what all the cool kids are saying? Yeah, yeah exactly. Mate, I'm glad you picked up on that because that was my thought as well, Prof. I, you know, whilst I appreciate the symbolism, ultimately I thought it was a really odd image and it, it just looked really negative and it looked a little bit wrong that is a counterintuitive that i think has that you know whilst on the one hand the independence I, I think it's really important that they mark out their independence because that is ultimately their selling point and if they want people to choose their beers over potentially cheaper um but similar beers that independence is one of the things that people constantly report in attitudinal surveys that it matters to them and it's a really good way for them to get the the um, message out there yeah for sure but i also think that that's a really negative logo symbol that i think might be taken the wrong way and just to actually the, the official way that they've described this it says the seal captures the spirit with which craft brewers have upended beer while informing beer lovers they are choosing a beer from a brewery that is independently owned yeah i, I think it just looks like an upended it looks like they've got the logo upside down is what most people will take away from that at first glance you need to really be aware you know to me a good logo is one that even if you don't understand all of the you know relative elements of it it still resonates with you in a positive way um because most people don't understand what logos mean but it should still stand for what it ultimately means in a way that people get and i think that that's just a, a an ultimately a negative yeah. symbol for them even though i think it's a great idea maybe Fair we're enough. just reading too much into this and uh it's just that ab inbev a couple of days before took out the trademark on pointy up the right way bottle and uh so that was all they were left with <laughs> could be something as simple as that you know we're hearing we're hearing hooves and we're thinking zebras uh anything else you, you wanted to talk about um, well i guess well, we, I th go on james yeah well i thought um one of the big stories that came out of last week was um i managed to interview 
Professor Karen Beaton-Wells from Melbourne Law School, who is certainly one of Australia's preeminent experts on competition law and had a really, really um, interesting chat with her about the prospects of success for either the ACCC or this class action that we've spoken about to change anything where tap contracts are concerned. And, and really the picture that she painted was that it would be incredibly difficult for either party, either the ACCC or, or a class action of small brewers to to be able to get anywhere with with actually, you know, with those proceedings. So it's a really interesting piece if you haven't, if, if, I, if I may blow my own trouble, oh, it's a really interesting it, piece. If you don't, I will because it was a, I thought it was a great, um, it was a really interesting, you know, article to do, um, to, to look at it. And, you know, I thought it was a really fascinating piece. Yeah, and I guess um, there's, everyone's got really strong opinions on this. And I think that there's sort of, Probably small brewers are right to feel that tap contracts are in some way unfair, but, you know, just the vibe is not going to be enough for um, anything to change. And breweries are, new breweries are entering the market in full knowledge that tap contracts exist. And I think based on the content of this particular interview, they're probably here to stay and people should probably get used to tap contracts and perhaps not expect that there's going to be anything favourable, certainly from the ACCC. And with the class action, I mean, David Burstiner, he's obviously a legal professional as well, and he seems to be confident that he can bring his own proceedings. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out, but certainly it was um, Karen Beaton-Wells' view that the prospects of success are pretty slim. James, did you see the article I sent you from Vine Pair, which had Mitch Steele... Um, from Stone Brewing, talking about you know the the effect. Formerly from Stone Brewing. Formerly of Stone Brewing, um, but uh, you know, his discussion about big brewers and brewery buyouts. Yeah, he certainly seemed to be a bit put out by the sale of Wicked Weed. Yeah, he made a really interesting point where he said that um, you know he was sort of talking, and, and I'll link to it so I don't have to go right into it. But he was talking about they're not swimming in cash like some of these big brewers are. Um, it really puts the small brewers at a, at a disadvantage. I think that the concern is that nobody really knows that except for small brewers. When somebody who's kind of casual craft beer fan walks into a bar and sees all these beers that are not craft yet are all brewed at Anheuser Busch, most of the time they're not registered. That it's, it's not a small independent brewer. When these brewers can potentially come in and sell a keg of beer for 50 to 60% of what a small craft brewer can afford to sell a keg at, it's really damaging the ability of the craft brewers to sell their beer. And that was after he'd teed off a little bit about saying that, you know, despite the pay-to-play laws um, in, in the States that a lot of brewers are still managing to, you know, form commercial ties. Um, so I, I actually flicked that quote to Muzzin Hadjar just to see if he had any comments about it and he hasn't replied. But I'm getting all these replies. Oh, okay. So, what, what did he say? He's, he's sending me. He's sending me an article a day. No, no. He's just. No, he's just sending me some. Uh, uh, we managed to catch up and have a really good chat in while we're in uh, Auckland. And yeah, I think it's probably something that we can devote a whole thing to, and perhaps even put a panel together. Yeah. So, what 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 thoughts do you have on on the issue, Prof? Uh, look, the more I look into it, the more I don't want to drink beer. I don't want to pay for beer that's produced by um, the multinationals. I think I'd rather leaning more and more towards independent. And but that's, that's something that you and I have. Um, you know, I think we've had this discussion over and over again. Um, I, I'm I'm very much against legislating 
because I think that that hurts a lot of people. You know, the law of unintended consequences we talked about in the last one. But you know, I make personal yeah, exactly. choices. But ultimately, and that's why I like the American logo because it lets it makes it easy for people to choose beers that are from independent breweries. But I, you know, I think this idea of going back to James's article about the um, tap contracts, tap contracts, whether it's formal contracts that they install the taps and then pour their own beers, or they're selling beers at half the price of um, craft brewers and still making this the same profit margin. Uh, you know, I, I, I think there are certain advantages that come with being huge and that small brewers can't compete um, on, on those elements. They can compete on being genuinely small and that's where things like logos and honesty in advertising really matter. Yeah, well, it'll be interesting to see whether um, the IBA does anything similar in Australia with, with some sort of labelling initiative for its members. Absolutely. Mm. I just think we still have a, a responsibility, I guess, to, to those who do care to give our voice to, I guess, that education side of things and letting people know who's who in the zoo. Well, I, I think that's something that we've always uh, been fairly strident on um, you know, and very strident on in my case <laughs> in the yeah, past when sure. you look at things like Byron Bay. And to, to be honest, that's why, you know, at the time, and I, you know, I, I think a lot of people thought I was uh, a little bit too loud and um, you know, vocal on the on the issue of that Byron Bay case. But to me, it was one of those cases that there was a line in the sand that had, was so far crossed by it. And, and very few breweries were willing to come out at that stage, particularly ones that were contract brewing, weren't willing to come out on labelling. Um, and things like labelling are very, very important because uh, it, it, consumers constantly, in, as I said in the attitudinal surveys, say that independence matters but that doesn't always translate into their buying decisions. And that's what intrigues me is, is it because they don't know um, that a lot of these brands aren't independent or do they just not care when it comes to saving a few dollars on a carton of beer? I think it's probably a bit of both because, yeah, there is that decision that has to be made when you're actually at the, the point of making a purchase and if there's a significant premium that's associated with a with an independent beer, that that definitely is a barrier for some people. Just so to bring it on an analogue, I care about where the eggs that I buy come from, but there are so many competing claims and definitions that sometimes when I'm in the shops, I'm just weary um, of trying to keep up and research because at the end of the day, it's just a fucking egg that I'm buying. I don't want to have to stand there with my iPhone out trying to work out that I'm making an ethical purchase. And I, I suspect that there is a lot of that in uh, beer buying decisions as well. And again, that's where the, the, the logo is very important. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah for sure. Um, James, uh, Adrian from Firestone Walker, and um, there has been quite a bit of feedback. We, uh, we, we reported in the podcast, um, and Adrian said in his uh, podcast discussion with us that they had an agreement with Dan Murphy's that their beers were only going to be stored cold, and we've been flooded with photos of quite large stacks of non-refrigerated beer, and uh, you, you've been looking into that, I believe? Yeah, and I will say just, you know, for starters, when I met with Adrian and interviewed him for my piece and heard what he said on Radio Brews News with you guys. I was a little bit sceptical uh, when he said all that about making sure it was refrigerated, only because we have heard a few American brewers that have entered the Australian market and sort of told everyone about how they're going to be different with the way that they're going to bring the beer into market and it's always going to be fresh. And I kind of think that you know, that first shipment comes in and, and, you know, everyone has all this fresh beer and then 
The problem with the Australian market is that often I think once people have drunk at that one time, they don't come back to, they don't sort of then make repeat purchases, they're on to the next thing. And so I think that often some of these beers do sit around after that initial launch a lot longer than perhaps the brewers would like or expect that they did. So I, I was a little bit sceptical when Adrian said that because his brand, Firestone Walker, is distributed in Australia by the same company that distributes Ballast Point and Carl Strauss to Dan Murphy's stores. So if he was able to strike this particular agreement that his beer would be refrigerated, whereas Ballast Point and Carl Strauss weren't, then that just struck me as seeming a little bit strange. And there obviously has been a pretty significant miscommunication. I don't think that it's we're still not 100% clear on where, you know, where Adrian has gotten this impression from that it would be refrigerated. I've put the questions to Dan Murphy's and we're still waiting on a response from them as as well as Adrian. But um, yeah, as you say, it's not like it was one isolated incident of, of some Firestone Walker beers sitting on shelves. It's kind of been uh, in stores across the country um, from our keen listeners who've who've been dobbing them in. And look, uh, for what it's worth, I just bought a six-pack of DBA, the Double Barrel Ale from Firestone Walker, from um, my local Dan's, and there were none on the shelves, only in the fridge. And the other thing I would point out, and it would be worth probably just to get some clarification, I'm pretty sure that Moobrew, when they first came out, uh, and became available in Dan's were only available in the fridge because I was told by uh, no, and to be fair, it wasn't a manager or anything like that. It was just you know, uh, excuse me, mate, I'm looking for Moobrew. Oh, we only kept them in the fridge because that's what they've told us to do. I think it's been done before. So, but is that still the case for Moobrew? Because I well, it can't. No, it's now available. If, it's, it's now available on the on the shelves, and I just wonder yeah. whether that coincided with the new brewery, so they were able to perhaps pasteurise or choose to pasteurise, whereas they didn't previously. I don't know. It'd be worth speaking to either, um, say, Stu Ritchie, um, who was brewing there at the time under OJ, or perhaps Dave McGill, um, who was perhaps more involved, or somebody who was, yeah, uh, Johnny Burridge maybe, who, who may have been involved in the, the dealings with with um, distribution. Mm, but certainly, uh, certainly logistics and uh, getting things to market because it's a, brewers seem to want to have their beers refrigerated all the way through and uh, a lot of beers absolutely need that. And yet it seems very, very hard in the structure of the market um, to, to have uh, beers stored in that way, which I think you know, ultimately, if you go back and look at a historical perspective, ultimately that's one of the reasons that led to the consolidation of beer you know, by being able to send it out to market and have it stay in the best uh, quality was one of the things that gave some brewers an advantage over others yeah yeah well the great thing about that was that we may not be getting a lot of uh, reviews on itunes and a lot of uh, cards and letters uh, formally but we are getting a lot of background discussion whenever we go out uh, for a beer and also people are hearing the things that are said on australian brews news and reporting to us to let us know when they uh, find that they're not actually having. So our audience is growing and are growing strongly. And if you want to help our audience to grow, you can leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcasting platform. Send us an email, producer at bruisenews.com.au, or you can find Peter, James, and my uh, contact details very easily on the website, or you can leave a comment on the comment section of, of Australian Brews News on the website. You can support the show by jumping online and becoming a sponsor or a producer or an executive producer or even just make a one-off donation to help us cover the costs of the show as well. 
Guys, anything else l looking ahead to the next week? Uh, just a quick one for me. I was lucky enough to be invited along as a guest of Brew Manatee to uh, Hopscotch, which is a relatively new bar. It's owned by the Publican Group, who have about 15 different venues across Melbourne and Perth. And on South Bank, on the, the promenade there, about ha halfway between the Art Centre and Crown Casino, right on the river there, uh, was a bar called World Bar and Restaurant. They've kind of rebranded it and redone it all under the same ownership and put in a little three-heck brew system called uh, Frank, Frank the Tank, which was named by their punters. And what they're planning to do, and they've first of all taken out about between 25 and 30 covers worth of, of space. And when you think about what South Bank Promenade real estate you know, rent would be worth, that's a, that's a fair commitment to start with. Um, then they've put in a beautiful little spark engineering system. Uh, in fact, I think it's identical to the one that uh, Simon has got down at Ocean Reach Brewing down at, at Cows. I think that might be the only other one of, of this particular type. That's, that's going around or that there may be more. But what they're doing is then monthly sort of allowing brewers to come in and brew. You could keg off it, but it basically goes directly to tank. So once the beer is ready to go, it, it's served straight from the from the same tank straight to the to the tap, which I think is it's a really great initiative, even apart from you know the cost. It, it just shows that they're they're a little bit fair income about putting decent beer. Uh, and a range of beer, and the, the, their tap list, they've got 40 taps, two of which are wine, two are um, cocktails, and the other 36 are, are beers. There'd be maybe you know, half a dozen of your you know, sort of furfy Heineken-type beer. They might have even had Rogers, I think, Rogers as a, as a mid-strength. But then the rest, a really interesting and broad range of independent Australian and international breweries. So, well done to them. Um, I'm hoping to get back out and try the oyster stout. We uh, we managed to to drop in quite a few kilos of um, of fresh unshucked oysters, which we then uh, left in the boil for ten or fifteen minutes, and then pulled them out and ate the oysters, which was sensational. And so, a big shout out to yeah Mick Jonteff and and Dave Neitz for um, getting the first couple of gigs on uh, on the new system. And well done to the guys at, at Hopscotch for uh, for their initiative. That beer sounds amazing. I was lucky enough uh, in the borough markets in London to have stout and oysters, but uh, I didn't get to eat the oysters that had gone into the kettle. That sounds like an amazing idea. Yeah, really, really interesting. Um, as I, the, and the the ones that first came out, I was lucky enough to sort of sneak into the kitchen. You know, I've, I've still got my pass. Um, still, you know, chef credentials. Um, so they said, no, no, come in, come in, just, you know, shuck a couple and, and grab them straight out. And then later on, we, uh, while they were sort of walking around serving them, as they'd sort of cooled down, they took on quite a different sort of flavour. Uh, a really interesting, uh, you know, you wouldn't want to do it, obviously, unless you're brewing a, an oyster stout. Um, but I'll be keen to see how the the brininess and that beautiful umaminess of the oysters sort of comes through in the, in the finished beer. Sounds awesome. And how about you, James? What have you got uh, coming up for the week? Um, goodness me, what do I have coming up? Nothing actually out of the box. What I would like to mention, though, is an event and where they're good supporters of Bruce News, which is Zoo Brew, just coming to Taronga Zoo in a few weeks' time. And what a what a unique venue to have a beer festival. So I think that's going to be, you know, I think with all the number of new breweries that there are opening up and there's also been, you know, a proliferation of beer festivals, there's probably too many on the calendar, some people would certainly argue. So, yeah, it's, but it's good to have something that's come in that's got such a point of difference. Yeah, so if you like really good beer and a bit of animal action combined. Yeah, like you, well, you're on the... You're on the fringe of the zoo, but you can certainly look over into the zoo and then you've just got these absolutely tremendous views over the harbour. I mean, there's, there's really no better view of Sydney than from the Taronga Centre. So 
I think that's going to be a, a pretty special event, and that's coming up um, July the twenty first to twenty third. Excellent. So for those, yeah, for those who aren't involved in the craft beer awards, yes, Prof, you're right. That will be people who are going to be down judging for the awards in Adelaide the following week won't be able to participate in that. But I'm sure there'll be some companies that'll be represented at the event, um, even if their brewers are down judging for the craft beer awards in Adelaide the following week. Exactly. Get along there. Support it. Matt, how's your week looking? Uh, oh, mate, I'm uh, back just catching up on a million emails. Sorry to anyone that uh, I haven't replied to. And, uh, yeah, pr- from here on in, uh, big range of like just getting ready for a number of festivals I've got coming up. Uh, beer and cheese at the French Festival, uh, followed by uh, Regional Flavours, which is coming up. And then, uh, well, we've got some big news with our next podcast in the pub with Charlie Bamforth uh, that comes after that. And then uh, uh, the exhibition. So I'm in full swing in full event mode, Prof. So, uh, yeah, plenty to keep me busy. Bring it on. Well, Prof, this is your show. Yeah, do you, do you want to take us out? It's your show. Yeah, sorry. I was, I was, I was waiting there for you. It was you know, just a force of habit. Not used to getting more than the 141 characters. And so that's all we have for you this week for our British News. Make sure to flick over next before you head back to your work to Beer is a Conversation, in which Matt will uh, have an interview that he's teed up from his time in the UK. But until then, James, thanks very much. Good to catch up with you again. Oh, thanks very much for having me. It's been a bit of a longer episode than we had while Matt was away, Prof. Yeah, I just just looking over at the time clock there. It uh, does seem to have dragged a little bit, but uh, it was good to catch up with Matt, awesome. Matt's postcard. Oh, there was a lot to talk about. And it wasn't just me. <laughs> it wasn't just um, me. So strike up the band and uh, we'll catch you all next week. Cheers. And we're out.